We are in a revolution. But it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first shot loses. We will not fire any shots because our weapon is uncommon good sense. Hello and welcome to Tractor Time. Tractor Time is brought to you by Barn to Door and Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture. I'm your host, Ben Trollinger, editor of Acres USA magazine. On this, our 54th episode, we welcome Doug Bierand. He's the author of a new book called In Search of Mycotopia, Citizen Science, Fungi Fanatics, and the Untapped Potential of Mushrooms. Doug is a freelance journalist who writes about science and technology, food, and education. His byline has appeared in Wired, The Atlantic, Vice, The Counter, Outside Magazine, and Civil Leads. I'm thrilled to share this interview with you today, but before that, we join investigative journalist Carrie Gillum for a monthly segment we call Industrial Ag Watch. On this edition of Industrial Ag Watch, we check in with Carrie Gillum to see what stories are emerging within our industrialized food system. Carrie's the author of the 2017 book Whitewash, the story of a weed killer, cancer, and the corruption of science. Whitewash won the coveted Rachel Carson Book Award from the Society of Environmental Journalists, as well as other literary awards. You can also go back and listen to a 2019 podcast we did with Carrie about that groundbreaking book. Her new book is out, and it's called The Monsanto Papers, Deadly Secrets, Corporate Corruption, and One Man's Search for Justice. You can find it at the AcresUSA.com bookstore. Carrie works as a reporter and director of research for U.S. Right to Know. Her work frequently appears in The Guardian, and she has more than 30 years of experience covering food and agricultural policies and practices. She also serves on the Freedom of Information Task Force for the Society of Environmental Journalists. Here's our latest conversation with Carrie Gillum. Welcome back, Carrie. Thanks for having me. You recently had a story in the Guardian newspaper about Paraquat, a potent and highly toxic weed killer. And the crux of the story is a set of documents that reveal a longstanding debate within a particular corporation concerning its formulation of a popular Paraquat-based product. Explain what's going on there. Yeah, I mean, this is all part of a bigger picture that is really coming into focus now on Paraquat, which is, you know, a weed killer that's been used, you know, for decades uh, in farming and in other applications. And there has been, um, you know, much global debate about, you know, the risk versus reward of this chemical for many years, because it is so known to be so acutely toxic, that if you get just a, you know, a very small amount ingested in your mouth, you swallow it, Uh, you are likely to be dead within a few days. There's no antidote. um, There's really no way to reverse this once it gets inside your body and and it kills very quickly. So that has been known. But what these documents show, then these came to light through U.S. litigation from a law firm that is suing Syngenta, which has been the primary distributor and manufacturer for Paraquat for many years. Uh, What these documents showed is that there was an internal debate um, that went on for many, many years about how to try to make this chemical less deadly, less acutely toxic, um, so that if somebody did accidentally swallow it, there would be time or there would be a method to help them, you know, survive this ingestion. You know, so this all really followed up from a, a scientist who worked at Syngenta for many years and actually argued internally with the company. He thought he had a way to make the product safer. The company rejected his suggestions 
and uh, has gone about, you know, with the formulation that it's had for many, many years. And so he is out there now proclaiming himself as sort of a whistleblower, if you will. And he has all of these documents uh, to support his allegations that there is a safer way uh, to make paraquat so that people aren't dying uh, when they are exposed to it in this way. But Syngenta rejects his, you know, allegations uh, pretty thoroughly. And this this may be something we see play out in court uh, here in the U.S. in the not too distant future. Well, they're rejecting what he's claiming, but what do the documents say? What do they suggest? The documents show um, that, in fact, they did reject, you know, his suggestions. What what it all comes down to is something called an emetic, uh, which is basically a substance or a compound that makes you vomit, that makes people throw up. And the idea that the scientist had was that if you double the amount of emetic that Syngenta put into its paraquat, Uh, that people then would be vomiting quicker. They would get this out of their body before it was able to do a lot of damage to kill them, and it could save lives. Syngenta, you see in these internal documents, they discuss, you know, this is going to be more expensive. This is going to cause a lot of problems. There are issues with raising concerns. They don't want to raise too many red flags with regulators. And so this goes on and on and on for many years before they finally you know, determine, first of all, to even put an emetic in their product, but they really do end up just deciding that they aren't going to double the amount. They're going to try to do other things to dissuade people from ingesting this, this chemical. And so what's the, what's the history of Paraquat? It, it is by no means a new product. It's been around for a long time. Yeah. I mean, Paraquat very definitely um, is one of those weed killers that's been around for decades. It's, you know, known to be pretty effective. Uh, It was introduced in 1962 uh, by predecessor company to Syngenta. Uh, But again, it's always been known to be so acutely toxic that it had to be very safely handled by farmers or other people who were using it. Uh, It's been banned in many countries. It's been banned throughout Europe, even though it's manufactured in Europe and sold to other countries. One twist to this is because it's so dangerous and so deadly, uh, it has been used, particularly in many Asian countries, for people who want to commit suicide. And, and this is something that you see Syngenta discussing internally. You know, there's really no way, they say internally, to prevent people who want to kill themselves from ingesting. It doesn't matter how much emetic we put in. It doesn't matter what we do. If they want to kill themselves, you know, they're going to do it. So it really is a fascinating look, I think, inside a company that's marketing a product that they know is very dangerous. You never really see a discussion, though, about, gosh, maybe we shouldn't be selling this. Um, They have a, a log. They're counting up the numbers of people who are dying around the world, but they're never questioning the need to market and and try to profit from this. They are simply trying to figure out all of the different ways that they can keep it on the market and keep regulators happy. Well, even if a farmer, let's say, is using the product according to recommendations, are there still risks associated with the use of Paraquat? Well, again, there have been a lot of accidental poisonings that have been reported by the EPA and others. And, you know, if something splashes up, uh, there's an accident, a spill, if a farmer gets, I mean, it's, it's again, a very small amount, just, just a teaspoon or less that can cause a lot of, you know, damage and likely death. Uh, the EPA is 
listed out several cases in which people who have ingested Paraquat are dead within usually about seven to 10 days, uh, even if they are you know, rushed to an emergency room and treated with charcoal or other sorts of things. So, you know, but generally farmers, we find, uh, I'm sure your listeners would agree, farmers are smarter maybe than the average pesticide user uh, and take precautions generally. And of course, Paraquat is a restricted use pesticide in the United States, and it carries a skull and crossbones usually on the label and very large language, bold, big black bolded language warning people about uh, the deadliness of the product. The EPA says on its website, you know, it has a page up there, one sip can kill about about Paraquat. So it's really in these other countries we're finding where either there are less regulatory requirements for warnings um, or people are taking Paraquat out of the, you know, packaging that it comes in and are storing it or sharing it. Uh, There are a lot of situations that have been documented where children have been exposed because maybe Paraquat has been stored in a soda bottle or a cup or something like that, and a child will drink it. So all of those things are sort of explored. The larger, or maybe not larger, but separate but related issue is that Paraquat has been tied to Parkinson's disease. And there are a number of scientific studies uh, and research um, and sort of a weight of evidence building that indicate that long-term exposure can do damage to the brain and can uh, cause this disease. And that's what litigation we're seeing really pop up around the United States right now, sort of similar to the Roundup litigation that we saw, alleging that Monsanto's glyphosate weed killer caused non-Hodgkin lymphoma. This is suing Syngenta, alleging that Paraquat products cause Parkinson's disease. And uh, as I said, you know, there is there's quite a bit of evidence linking the disease and the chemical. And uh, Syngenta's you know, going to have its hands full. I think there are lawyers advertising all around the United States now for clients and really trying to build this into a mass mass tort situation. And what has Syngenta's approach been thus far? Well, Syngenta, um, you know, has taken the position that Paraquat does not cause Parkinson's disease and uh, sent me a study last year to look at that was part of the agricultural health study. And, you know, I did look at that and I was curious that they sent it to me because as as you read it, you see that the researchers found an increased risk for people who were using Paraquat, an increased risk of Parkinson's, but that was people who were using Paraquat and then had suffered some sort of head injury. Those people had a more prevalent risk for Paraquat or for Parkinson's disease. There's another agricultural health study that uh, has come out that is a little bit older that shows a doubling of the risk for users of Paraquat to get Parkinson's disease. And there's a, there's actually a new book that's come out and, and a a scientist from uh, Europe who is considered one of the leading neurologists studying Parkinson's disease in the world. And he is very directly saying Parkinson's uh, is likely to double worldwide, the number of cases, and he is tying it to widespread exposure to herbicides, Uh, and other toxic chemicals. And he specifically talks about uh, Paraquat in this situation. So Carrie, what is the EPA's position on all this? So the EPA is currently reviewing Paraquat, giving it a, a, you know, another look, a registration review process. Um, But the agency released a proposed interim decision on Paraquat 
And they are talking about, you know, proposing some mitigation measures to try to reduce human health risks and things like that that have already been identified. But they say that they have done a thorough review of the scientific research connecting Paraquat to Parkinson's disease. And they say that they have concluded the weight of evidence doesn't support a link between the two. So again, this is, I guess, somewhat similar to the Roundup situation where the EPA has said there's uh, no solid connection between cancer and glyphosate. And this is what we're seeing from the EPA on Paraquat. Well, how how transparent are they, the the EPA, I mean, about their methodology in making in making these conclusions? Well, you know, it's it's similar to what they always do, I guess. I mean, they are citing a lot of literature and but what the EPA does is it, you know, interprets the literature itself. It looks at epidemiology and other data and then assesses that data. Oftentimes the EPA scientist assessments do not dovetail with independent scientist assessments. We saw that in glyphosate, of course. So I think this is something, again, that we're going to see battled out in the courts. Uh, The lawyers who are um, bringing this litigation uh, say they have thousands of pages of internal Syngenta documents that, that show that Syngenta knew of a link to Parkinson's and worked very hard to cover it up. There is currently a a trial scheduled um, for May uh, to take place in Illinois. We are unsure if that's really going to happen because of COVID restrictions on courthouses and things. But again, stay tuned. Well, Carrie, thanks so much for keeping us informed. Well, thank you for having me. I want to take this moment to introduce our new sponsor, Barn to Door. They're doing a new segment aimed at helping farmers, and you'll hear that later in this episode. But who are they? Barn to Door powers farmers who sell direct, helping them increase sales, access customers, and save time. They help farmers meet buyers' expectations through easy ordering and an accessible brand across all online channels. Farmers use software, services, and resources from Barn to Door to manage and promote their business. The bottom line is this. Farmers that provide convenient buying and delivery options reach more buyers. Data shows farmers can double revenue when they offer online subscriptions and direct delivery. Promote your brand, manage your orders, and keep your profits with Barn to Door, providing the capabilities and support you need to build a thriving farm direct business. Learn more at barntodoor.com forward slash tractor time. Fungi. Fungi, however you pronounce it, and I think I say it both ways in the interview, it's having a moment in public consciousness right now. You see them suddenly in the supplement aisle, you see documentaries about them, but are you actually seeing them out in the wild with your own eyes? I remember my first year in Colorado, a coworker took my family on a foraging trip to one of her secret stashes in the National Forest. We took home a modest haul of porcinis and we cooked them up that night. My son, just a toddler then, learned the difference between mushrooms with gills and mushrooms with pores. Me too, if I'm being honest. And I likely never would have noticed these mushrooms had I not been with someone with a trained eye. It was an unforgettable experience, and fungi has that effect on people. As you'll hear, our guest today, journalist Doug Bierand, had a similar fungi experience more than five years ago that changed the course of his life. And what I really like about Doug's approach in his new book is that he doesn't hype fungi. He isn't selling anything. Fungi aren't the solution to all of our problems, but they are something that we ignore and dismiss at our peril. There is true transformative power to be found in the humble fungus. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Doug Bierend. 
Doug, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Fungi seems so familiar and yet so alien. It's this thing that we put on a burger or a pizza, but that's such a narrow slice of this often misunderstood and sometimes demonized kingdom of life. In the course of your research, how did your consciousness evolve when it comes to fungi? What did before and after look like for you? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, the the biggest distinction I, I think I could point to on either side of that you know, divide, which isn't really a, a sharp <laughs> divide. I think it's a, it's a journey, of course, and, you know, an elongated introduction to this kingdom of life. And that, and that introduction, I think, really marks the difference for me, like recognizing fungi uh, in the environment, in the world for what they are. Um, I mean, at the level of just walking into the woods and having a new kind of dimension to appreciate and a reason to stick my nose into a log, you know, that's rotting on the forest floor which I might not have done before. It also has changed my perception of what's happening in the forest and my relationship to it because you know, discovering fungi means discovering the connections uh, between things, especially in the forest where, where these things are really vi vivid and, and you know, more extreme, I guess you could say, than in, in you know, less lush environments. So the forest is really the place to, to indulge in, in fungal uh, fellowship, as I've come to call it. Um, but it comes with a, a, a widening of your perspective and a, an appreciation of the, the interactions between everything around you. You know, you, if you'd walked into the woods and didn't recognize or see the plants or the animals, um, you would be missing as big a picture as you are by not recognizing the fungi, which are just as large a kingdom, just as important and fundamental and widespread. They're just not as easy to see and not as evident to us. So it's a I guess a holistic change that I think happened uh, as a result of just recognizing a, an aspect of the world that's always been there. What was the moment for you where this came onto your radar? Uh, well, where fungi came onto my radar was um, through the internet, maybe appropriately in a certain way. Um, I had been writing about technology and media and was looking for hope um, solutions uh, as I was becoming also more sensitive to uh, the ecological and social crises that are mounting and continue to mount. And uh, I was becoming, uh, I guess, disillusioned with the discourse around technology and the, the limits imposed by the, the system under which we live and the systems under which we, we live that limit the benefits that we might ever see from any innovations. And then I discovered this guy named Paul Stamets, who's a, maybe the most famous mycologist in the world. Yeah. Um, and his talk, uh, Six Ways Mushrooms Can Save the World, just kind of hit me right at the right time um, and in the right way to see all of these promises about, you know, fungi cleaning waterways and contaminated soils and providing new medicines and materials and all of that still I find very interesting and exciting. But that just started me recognizing them. Uh, down the line a little bit, uh, I started writing about food uh, as part of this kind of transition from technology writing. I actually interviewed Paul Stamets for an article in a technology website, which is kind of funny. But writing about food, I went to visit a, a cultivator in upstate New York who was, the, the, the angle on it was basically that it was like an anti-capitalist mushroom business. And how do you develop a business plan around that sort of thing? And Olga, the proprietor of this company, Smugtown Mushrooms, took me into the woods and uh, it was on a foray, they call it, which is just going into the woods to look for mushrooms. And it was a basically a spiritual experience for me because like I was describing before, 
it represented this sort of flipping of a switch of recognition. And in the book, I think I describe it as, uh, you know, the, the forest lighting up like a pinball machine, <laughs> you know, these uh, beings all around that I hadn't recognized before, but were already there. And I, I kind of call that the moment that it, it really changed for me and, and I became a, a convert. How has the scientific perspective on fungi changed over time? I mean, we're just now starting to understand the essential role that it plays in soil health, for example. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it, and it's, uh, it's uh, described by some as a neglected mega science, um, you know, even today, because it is massively important. And as we've alluded to, you know, it's everywhere. It, it, it facilitates a lot of what's essential in our, to keep our ecologies running and to sustain life as we know it. But it's, you know, there, it's been maligned culturally for a long time, certainly in the, in the so-called West. Not, it's only been recognized as a distinct kingdom as of 1969. Prior to that, it was, you know, taxonomically considered a subset of plants. So a lot of the developments in recognizing fungi for what they are and also just documenting their biodiversity, they're, they're woefully under-documented. Um, and it, it, all of that comes down to uh, the recent emergence of genetic techniques uh, that allow us to actually see them or to, to detect them because many of them are invisible. Not all fungi make mushrooms. In fact, many, I believe most, don't. They live as uh, threads of mycelium um, woven into the cells of plants or uh, hidden in soils or in dung you know, from animals. And the, their ecologies are just becoming kind of uh, visible to us because of tools that allow us to, to detect them. They aren't as easily identified as a tree or a bird that flies over overhead. Um, so I think for a long time, that's been a limitation uh, in addition to the cultural piece. And uh, I had it described to me by one uh, mycologist as uh, that we're currently living through the, the Victorian revolution for mycology um, as a sort of echo of what happened with uh, botany in particular and the study of insects at the time that microscopes uh, were emerging. I think that's a, a pretty handy way to kind of assess where the, the science is at. And, and similarly to that era, uh, there's a, a, an, the involvement of a lot of uh, amateurs or enthusiasts, people outside of the institutions with great enthusiasm and also great knowledge, access to greater technology in terms of specifically with genetics. People are sequencing genes in their, you know, garages, and they can contribute the results to, you know, larger uh, mainstream scientific institutions. And so, um, that a similar dynamic uh, was the case in the Victorian era too. So it really does seem to be an echo of that. Right in the book, you highlight the efforts of what you call citizen scientists. Describe some of the work that they're doing and and why it's necessary. Uh, why was that important for you to foreground in the book? Yeah, um, well, for one, it's it's interesting to me that fungi seem to be a, a zone where definitions of expertise are being challenged um, in, in a certain way. Contributions can be made by people well outside of institutions that also happen to, you know, participation in those institutions traditionally has, has been limited by certain um, demographic factors, gender, things like that. So that's another issue, but I think it's part of why fungi are also becoming sites of conversations about you know, social justice issues and things like that. But at the bare level of just anyone can do science, I find it really fascinating. And it's enabled by a lot of these technologies. And so you get, you know, mushroom clubs and, and mycology associations and groups like that who organize trips out into the woods and they bring back samples. And part of that culture is just identifying and getting to know these mushrooms. 
So there's a lot of knowledge in these communities and people are trying to find ways to plug that into the institutions by way of apps like iNaturalist or various databases, um, social media is playing a huge role in it. And the reason it's important is because, you know, as, as I, I, th- I hope I'm conveying, fungi are quite important and mm-hmm. it's, it's good to know them, you know, as a, as, as a species with the powers we have in the, on this planet and the responsibilities we have, and they are just woefully understudied. So we don't even know what we're losing in the midst of climate change and habitat loss. The uh, estimates, I believe, are below 10% of the total number of fungal species on Earth, they believe, have been identified so far. So it's this huge backlog. And, and there's a lot of mushrooms found that haven't been identified. And, and genetic techniques are revealing connections between uh, mushrooms that uh, show that we don't actually, we, we might not be able to guess how they're related just by looking at them. Two mushrooms that look alike might be very different uh, in terms of the path they took to get there. And two that look different might be very closely related. So it's just a huge question mark about what's out there, how much of it is out there, what's in danger of being lost, and also how can we maybe benefit from getting to know this massive uh, you know, zone of undiscovered life. They generate a lot of, currently yeasts in particular generate a massive amount of like industrial enzymes, you know, so like fungi, yeast are a fungi already are, are tapped for for the things they produce. We use them in our food and bread and or our food and drink, I mean, and they uh, they play roles in our lives already. So it's it's uh, it's up to anyone's imagination what future roles might be played by that, you know, 90% of undiscovered species. And then also people are cracking uh, difficult, uh, you know, cultivation techniques. They are kickstarting local markets around specialty mushrooms for food and medicine. You know, a lot of those mushrooms don't travel well, so they sort of favor local markets. So I think that the scientific effort is also maybe serving to power some economic and social effects and outcomes that that are interesting as well. Well, just just a moment ago, you described a spiritual experience that you had, or that's that's the term that that you used, and how you were describing it was that you you were seeing things that you hadn't noticed before, and and to me, you know, science is at its core about close observation. And when we think about wild places, we often think about them as fields of play, you know, that's something to ride your mountain bike through or something to trail run through. How can fungi be a, a vehicle for closer observation of the natural world? And why is that important, do you think? Oh, I mean, I don't think I could overstate how, how important it is to, uh, you know, uh, for every every amount, every mote of extra, you know, attention and intention that we we give to nature, I think is is to the benefit of us and it, um, and we are it. And that's, you know, l- language like that and using terms like spiritual experience, you know, I, I, I'm, th- those aren't the sorts of terms I used to use. And I, I use them as a, a pretty materialist person myself and, in, in, you know, a basic way, but the material with which I'm made comes from nature. And, and I, so I feel a pretty close relationship to it. And that's, I, I'm, I'm sort of alarmed at how new that is, um, despite having spent a lot of time outdoors as a young person, yeah, like you say, uh, the outdoors is sort of presented to many of us as a resource, as something to utilize and to, to exploit. Um, you know, maybe even if it's not, you know, kind of put that way or in such a, a, a directly exploitative sounding way, it, it, it's it's our conception of, of nature. And I guess there's there's the the aspect of fungi just being overlooked in general and kind of maligned, like you, you noted earlier and, and off, uh, 
uh, out of our sight often you know you have to kind of look for them to find them the act of switching or the, or the the i mean the act of noticing is i think in and of itself a pretty transformative thing once you allow yourself to do it because instead of just uh, taking the landscape as this thing that you're about to cross you 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 enter it and it becomes a space that you're exploring and learning from and and you know when you learn about fungi you learn about how the tree on this side of the trail is connected to the tree on this side of the trail many times through fungi um, underground and the uh, role of those fungi too is to um, degrade and, and decay what's around you and you know anything that's dying in that environment is is being chewed up first and foremost by fungi they're called primary decomposers for that reason and they're also associated with death and decay for that reason but i think part of the change that comes with recognizing them is that you recognize death and decay aren't necessarily bad things in fact they're essential and the picture of what's happening around you and in, in the natural world i think just becomes more vivid for the addition of this vital layer in your awareness and it also changes the like practical relationship you have with that with that environment because now if you know what you're looking for you're with someone who does you can find food and medicine suddenly that space represents an abundance that it didn't before at least that was my experience um in that uh, you know trip that i mentioned earlier we, we, were, we were taking mushrooms off of trees that were like lion's mane mushroom is the one i'm thinking of in particular that are delicious and uh amazing to look at aesthetically and you can get good money for them at the market too and we just pulled it off a tree and took it home and cooked it and ate it and you know i, I think people who forage and you know uh, anyone who, who's who's brought food for, back from nature i think uh can find their way to a similar sense of abundance but for me fungi got me there we're going to hit pause on this interview for a brief segment from our sponsor barn to door. Hey, this is Sebastian from Barn to Door. In today's Farmer Spotlight, we have Tom Bennett from Bennett Farms in Edwardsburg, Michigan. We asked him what his experience has been like using Barn to Door to sell directly to his customers over the past year. Here's what he had to say. I had to make a decision that it's either I continue farming and quit my day job and go all in, or I got to scale back the farming because I couldn't do both. And so we decided that the farming looked pretty promising and went all in on that. And it's been a success in my opinion since then. So we've doubled our annual sales and we've done that every year for the past multiple years. And we'll probably almost double again next year. The growth is amazing. Like I, I kind of thought it was possible when I started this, but to actually see it happen, like I don't think we could be in business the way that we are today without our online store in the winter because we have to cash flow all of our production for the summer still during the winter. You're spending a lot of money on animals and feed and things like that. So having all of those online sales and the subscriptions that helps bankroll your production going in the summer. But without the online store with all of the sales coming in, that would be more of a challenge. If you'd like to hear more from Tom, go to barntodoor.com slash tractor time. Thanks for listening. In contrast to a lot of what you were just saying, fungi is having a moment among certain groups of people. Some might call them social and economic elites. I'm thinking specifically about the culture that's springing out of Silicon Valley and other places surrounding, you know, quote unquote, performance optimization using mushrooms like 
lion's mane, which you just mentioned, and cordyceps, for example. And I'm also thinking about the mainstreaming of psilocybin as a kind of therapeutic. Is this largely a positive trend or are you worried about the commercialization of fungi? What are the dangers there? Yeah, uh, I want to say yes to both. You know, I mean, I think it's a, a positive in that people are becoming aware of these, you know, uh, these beings and these substances, um, the the relationships that we can have with them. I mean, that's how I frame it. You know, I try to avoid terms like use and extract just a, out of my own personal kind of vernacular, but you know, you can substitute those in there if you like. And I think there's obvious like benefit that's been kind of shown from from therapeutic applications, um, medicinal applications. Like there's good that can be derived from the popularization and widening of access. Not to mention the decriminalization that tends to target certain communities, and, and or the, rather the criminalization that targets certain communities, and the decriminalization as a means of reducing that. I think that's all great. But yes, it's also a space where capital is is. You know, encroaching at a, a high rate. And that is, in my view, just going to exacerbate many of the same, you know, issues that we hope to address. Um, you know, I went to the POC fungi community um, in San Diego, mm-hmm. uh, or unceded Kumeyaay territory, as they would say. And uh, there was a community of BI POC gathering around fungi with the theme of medicine. And, you know, it was really a, a, a community building exercise more than it was any any kind of like science fair or, you know, mushroom fan club. It, it was about this community coming together. And, and they were talking in this instance about medicine and, and they were referring to these, uh, to psilocybin mushrooms in particular. Many of the people there had, you know, cultural connections to the use of those mushrooms in traditional, you know, uh, South and Central America. And they're telling me, you know, explicitly, like they don't know if they'll be able to afford the $500 treatment centers once they open up. And, you know, if, if they are to try to circumvent, you know, official channels, then they're more likely to be punished for that than, you know, people who are <laughs> probably going to benefit from the uh, the cornering of the market that's emerging. I, I also feel like the the emergence of fungi is this massive and and you know transformative in many ways kind of field of inquiry and activity is happening at a time when we're confronting those legacy inequities. And so I feel like you know that POC fungi gathering and other gatherings that I document in the book to me were evidence that this is all happening in in relationship to the crises we're facing. And I'm, I'm hoping, and part of my intent with the book was to encourage the conversations about how these, you know, micro technologies, these markets, these ideas, you know, unfold and get seized and carried forward is done with an awareness of these other issues that are being raised into which it all connects. So it's concerning to me. I think capital changes any landscape that it touches. And this is no exception, but I also have hope because I think we're at a moment and I think there are aspects to this um, subject and, and to the communities that are kind of at the fore of all of this that, that give me hope that it's, it's going to unfold in a, in a way that might be a little more equitable and sustainable. Right. In, in the book, you, you write about fungi as being this catalyst for social change, as you were just alluding to. At first glance, that concept might be hard to wrap your head around. How do those things intersect? Can you expand on that? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sort of a notion I have really, um, because it's, it, it's hard to say that, yeah, mushrooms are, are going to change the world, except in some kind of general sense, you know, that they already are, they're already part of everything that's happening around us. And so they, they've been changing the world since they've been here. And yet I'm, I'm willing to kind of uh, say that I, I see them as, as a catalyst, like you say, for a, 
for conversations, for gatherings, um, and for, for modes of work uh, that suggest alternatives <laughs> to the status quo. So, you know, there's there's just the the kind of recognition of nature and, and the, the worldview, I think, that comes from a, a you know, relationship to fungi. It's something I hear a lot, and there seem to be these kind of universal insights and traits among people that have found their way into this stuff. And it connects with a lot of permaculture, and it connects with a lot of, uh, well, it connects with social justice discourse, because there's a lot of conversations now about, you know, land stewardship and uh, in terms of like logging and and what effect that has on the fungal species. And so you've, you've gone like once, once you, uh, the way I put it is like you start talking about mushrooms and if you're looking for mushrooms, you have to start looking at the trees as well because they associate with trees. So if you want to find a particular mushroom, you're already talking about trees. And if you're talking about the trees, you're talking about, and the mushrooms, you're talking about the aspect of the land and the microclimate in there. And then you're talking about the state of the forest. And then you're talking about the policy that governs that forest. And you're talking about the state that administers that policy. So it's that kind of thing that I've observed. And, you know, I go to a space, uh, another place that I visit in the uh, book is called the New Moon Mycology Summit, where I'm there to, you know, I'm going to a mushroom festival, you know, on is what the headline might say, but I'm hearing conversations about white supremacy and binaries, uh, you know, that need to be uh, challenged, um, subverting patriarchy, capitalism, re- land as the basis of redistributive justice, like mushrooms were in that mix too. I mean, people were going into the woods and looking for mushrooms and and, and fungi were, were a very major part of the conversation and activities there, but they were the oper- they they were also just serving as the opportunity to have these other conversations and i think it's something to do with just how many aspects of science and and nature and the world are touched by fungi and how many people can find their way into curiosity about them and therefore how many voices are able to show up at these gatherings you know not just in physical space but just to gather around a conversation around mushrooms that's happening right now people are discovering them and becoming very interested in them and so it's it's emerging right now, and I think that means that its its tone is being set, you know, as a as a subject of popular uh, understanding. And so there are people who, through their relationship with fungi and nature, it's not just fungi, you know, are already growing them, are already advocating for them. I think many of them are trying to steer the conversation in in the direction we were talking about before. And so they're using this energy as a uh, to power these bigger conversations. So I don't know if it's anything inherent about fungi themselves, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It feels like it's very much about the moment we're having and the fact that these organisms have been overlooked and maligned and, and, they're, they're, and there are communities that identify with that who also have special relationships to these conversations that have been emerging about like, oh, we can clean landscapes and waterways uh, with fungi, which is a simplified way of putting that claim, but it's basically true that that sort of thing is possible. Well, that has special meaning to communities that face environmental racism. And so that becomes an opportunity to talk about the environmental racism as much as the myco-remediation itself. As you mentioned, fungi has this kind of incredible untapped potential from cleaning up toxic waste to waterways to bringing balance to the body. Can, Can you walk us through all of its qualities and applications? You saw a lot of this firsthand um, over the course of your research for the book. Yeah, it's a long list. You know, it's a, it's, there are, there's a whole field called applied mycology that I guess the, the, the list would read something like soil health, um, you know, gardeners use it, uh, landscapers 
and again, there's my language, I'm catching myself, they, they will apply fungi um, to uh, mycorrhizal fungi, for example, to, to build a more healthy uh, relationship between tree and soil or plant and soil and between plants. And there are a whole range of new materials being developed for replacing leather, packing material, um, meat substitutes, using mycelium as their substrate and their basis. There are just the basic like mushroom markets. So selling medicinal and, and culinary mushrooms. And there, uh, there's a lot of interesting activity around just growing them. It's in, in various environments and at various scales at low cost. Um, they are a high value product that you can uh, produce at relatively low cost. Uh, medicinally, I mean, there are, um, you know, we've touched on the psilocybin aspect and, and that's a whole conversation. Um, but there are also cordyceps and reishi, lion's mane, these other, you know, mushrooms of traditional medicinal value. And a lot of that comes down to like, again, traditional use. Uh, and there is scientific research kind of uh, emerging and evolving, showing what the, what the real mechanisms might be behind those medicinal qualities that gets into a little bit of a fuzzier area for me. How so? Well, because the, the, maybe because of that capital thing that we talked about earlier, I think there's a lot of interest in wholesome, regenerative and non-pharmaceutical medicine. And I think that that urge can be exploited. Um, I relay in the book, you know, my mom who's fighting cancer while I was writing this book had a, a bottle of mushroom pills that her mom had seen on TV and, and ordered for her. And I looked at the bottle and it, it was very vague as to what it um, contained. You know, it just said contains basidiomycete fungus, which is a whole category of, it, it really didn't tell you what the, what the kind of mushroom in there was. And it just, it registered to me as very much playing on the, the, the fact that people had heard mushrooms have medicinal value, you know, they, they heard it fights cancer and, you know, okay, well, here's some mushroom pills, you know, from some anonymous company somewhere. So, you know, contrast that with what I saw at the POC fungi community uh, gathering, which was, you know, reishi mushrooms, which again, have a traditional use. There is research attesting to the, the effect that they can have, the effects that they can have. And one of those is meant to be cancer fighting. I don't, I, I part of the reason I'm reluctant to like get into that stuff is because I don't know how valid that research is. I'm not really in a, a place to assess the the medical value of mushrooms, but I bought those mushrooms and sent them to my mom anyway, because to me, there was, there was real value in the fact that it was grown at home by someone who was doing it to serve this community rather than, you know, an industry. And I think that relationship to medicine is, is something that culture that various cultures have had, um, you know, and that we've lost in a lot of ways in the West. So, yeah, I think it's a, a, a complicated thing. I, I feel like that it's more like the agency and the medicinal sovereignty of it that I, I think is really valuable. I can't speak to the biochemical um, aspect of what reishi mushroom does. And I'm glad that I can't because uh, I'll leave that to the pros. We'll talk more about its application with cleaning up industrial waste. And that's something that factors into your book. Sure. It's, um, well, it's simply put, you know, fungi can, can often soak up heavy metals into their mushrooms. They uptake various heavy metals or they can glom them onto their mycelium as defensive measures. Copper, for example, they uh, also in certain cases can break down various chemicals. I mean, fungi are great decomposers. That's their chief role in nature, you might say. And 
that's given them a lot of enzymatic acumen. They can really break down a lot of molecules and, um, you know, lignin in trees and cellulose and things like that. But also, I mean, one, one test had them breaking down VX nerve agent gas, you know, from that's a Paul Stamets, uh, uh, point. You'll hear him mention a lot, and right. a lot of hydrocarbons and oils. Um, it's not as simple as just introducing a mushroom into a, an oil spill though. You know, it's, um, in fact, it's, it may not even be all that useful. <laughs> you know, the fact that a, it, there's a headline that made the, the rounds recently that, that, uh, was ballyhooing a, uh, a plastic eating mushroom. And I'm, I'm sure people listening have, have seen it. Some, some have at least that uh, this new mushroom was discovered that could eat plastic, but really what's happening there is it's called an endophyte. It's a fungus that lives in a, in the cell of a plant. Its context is inside the cell of the plant. It's a symbiont. They isolated it and in a lab were able to get it to break down a certain hydrocarbon that's used in plastics. And so that got turned into that headline. And, you know, the, the capacity fungi have to, to do these things might not actually redound to an ability to clean up the oil spill, you know, but the, the, the trick is to find out how to leverage those abilities to do that. Maybe not necessarily by just yeah plugging mushrooms into the problem. And I, I guess that's sort of the point of the book too. I'd like us to <laughs> be a little more nuanced in how we're looking at the, the promise these things represent. Since this is a, a podcast for farmers, I was hoping you could put fungi into an agricultural context for us. How is it grown at scale? Who's growing it? What does the industry look like? And in your view, what's the agricultural future for fungi? Yeah. I mean, as far as I know it, the, the main, the, the field of like button mushrooms, agaricus bisporus mushrooms um, that account for, I believe it's in the high 90% of mushrooms produced uh, and consumed in this country is, um, you know, mainly centered in Pennsylvania and Kennett Square. And that's a, been since the seventies, basically, that's not a market, you know, one can break into unless they're willing to do it at scale, I think. And it's pretty well cornered <laughs> by these, these companies, but there is, I think a massive space for growth in the specialty mushroom market. And that's where a lot of the people I'm uh, documenting and who I talk to for this book are working with. And that includes medicinal mushrooms, but it's, it's also heavily focused on oyster mushrooms, lion's mane mushrooms, shiitake, things like that. That's, I think, I think that accounts for something like 10% of the market right now. And, and as public awareness and interest grows, I think that'll, that'll keep growing. And it's also, I think uh, I alluded to this earlier, it's, it's got interesting dynamics as far as the, the shelf stability of these mushrooms and, and the kinds of markets. I think that that might serve. It's possible to grow them in all sorts of environments with low square footage. So I think that they represent a really uh, enticing value add for a lot of um, farmers and, not, and, and anyone growing food. So, and, and also just for, for landscaping, I've talked to some people in this book who as a service will, will factor mushrooms into landscaping for their clients so that in addition to whatever they're growing, you know, whether it's a garden or a small farm or something, they also get mushrooms as, as part of the, the, again, it's part of a kind of permacultural lens, I think that, that naturally fits with the mycological perspective. They, they connect these things. Uh, so yeah, I, I think that it's wide open at this point, honestly, I think that the, the, the ceiling is going to be set by public awareness and, and interest. And, um, you know, also I think that uh, that interest is cutting against a lot of common perceptions of fungi as a pathogen, uh, as a pest, you know, for a lot of farmers, they are that, and, and they, they are formidable 
you know, if they, if the, if the right one gets on the, uh, on the wrong crop. So yeah, I guess that I'm just trying to speak to the conception of fungi uh, as something other than the enemy, <laughs> which um, from people I've talked to is, is pretty common. And as that changes, uh, I think both, I hope that farmers uh, will be more interested in finding ways to, to incorporate them into their, into what they do. And that'll, I think, be matched by a, a growing interest uh, among the public. Are there pioneering or innovative cultivators who stand out to you? Oh yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot. The first that comes to mind is Trad Cotter in South Carolina. He runs a farm there called Mushroom Mountain, and he's a sort of like tinkerer. <laughs> I'm trying to think of some of the best like experiments I've seen from him. He, he's he's always finding ways of applying fungi to different problems, and you know, dissolving old textiles, for example. So he taught mushrooms to grow out of old genes and eat up the genes. And he's really interested in these closed systems that, for example, link um, spirulina to mushrooms in a, an oxygen um, CO2 exchange. And so you get these two, you know, value add kind of products for in one cycle. And to that note, uh, there's also William Padilla Brown, who's uh, sort of a protege of trads, who's also working with spirulina and a lot of these like circular systems. Um, and he's one of the people who kind of cracked the code on cultivating cordyceps, which is one of these high value medicinal mushrooms. And I think he's 25 at this point. And he, he talks about having learned uh, genetic uh, sequencing via YouTube. And so he and his friends just because they were interested, um, worked out how to cultivate these mushrooms that normally just grow out of insects. And they figured out how to do it on nutrified brown rice. And now across the country, there's a, a boutique industry uh, emerging of cultivators producing these you know, little orange mushrooms, they call them Cheetos. And this other kind of layer of people putting them into ghee and coffee and, you know, energy bars and stuff like that. And so, yeah, those two come straight to mind and the list could go on, but I'll leave it at that. What was the most surprising or strange thing you discovered about fungi and writing this book? Was Is there a story or fact that stands out to you? The strangest thing? Well, I guess the 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 one that made me take a step back mentally uh, and 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 reconsider my life was probably the recognition that my body is filled with fungi as well as other microbes and the micro and microbiome. We hear about that a lot, but while I was doing my research, I came across an article that told me that the human body is mostly microbial cells. So like the volume of cells in our body is comprised mostly of cells that aren't human. And that I think is a reflection or an echo of the, the the bigger picture of like interconnectedness and reciprocity and those other sort of fuzzy words that I like to use a lot around this subject. My own body is a community, you know, and and I think meditating on that gave me some some real kind of existential <laughs> questions that I don't know if I've quite resolved yet, but it definitely challenged my my notion of the individual, and uh, I feel like that. That happens on a number of levels when you're when you're talking about fungi, microbes, the natural world. They're very much a part of our day-to-day -day existence and they're responsible for us being here, but we don't even recognize their presence. And, and I, to me, that's a pretty profound thing. Well, I'm curious how you incorporate fungi into your own life. Notice I, I didn't use the word use. Uh, what does that look like for you now? Uh, these days, it's mostly fermenting. I've been, uh, and and that's either a bacterial or a fungal process. I've been focusing mostly on krauts lately. So I'm, I'm doing the lactic acid bacteria uh, cultivation myself, but uh, I also have five big bags of uh, fungus sitting on my fireplace right now that if, you know, the neighbor came over, I'd probably have to explain it. 
Um, it's it's uh, from Smugtown, actually, which I mentioned earlier. Um, I, I bought these. They're called the spawn kits or, or ready-to-fruit blocks, and you just kind of have to keep them a bit moist. And then mushrooms grow out the sides, and you cut them off and you cook them well, or put them in your tea if they're you know, reishi or whatever. So it's just now a normal part of my life to, to be growing mushrooms at home and to have them as part of my diet and to be fermenting things, um, but also to be going out into the woods and looking for them. And I'm very excited about uh, the summer and the fall coming up because uh, I'm planning to be uh, stocking the fridge <laughs> with the uh, treasures from the woods. So yeah, I th- I, none of this is uh, stuff you would have heard me say uh, five years ago. If someone was wanting to make fungi bigger part of their life, either through foraging or cultivation, what would you tell them? Where should they start? What books should they read aside from yours? I, I would just repeat the, the the growing block thing. I feel like that's probably the best way for anyone who's not already familiar or who's curious to, to get a very tangible um, interaction uh, with something that's, you know, sort of plant, sort of animal and genetically is actually, they've found pretty much right between evolutionarily it is sort of between plant and animal and and it's uncanny to share space with that if you haven't as it's growing and and expressing you know its life over over the course of a few days or weeks and there's no shortage of opportunities to do that i think no matter where you are in this country you can you can get one mailed to you so you you could uh, north spore is a company i would i would maybe recommend people look to based out of Maine. I think they ship throughout the country, but there are probably uh, farms closer to you too, if you don't live on the East Coast, that that uh, you could find a, a ready-to-grow block from. So I'd say that. And then, you know, the the books like, uh, I mean, Paul Stamets' Mycelium Running is a, a classic. Um, the IY Multi- uh, Mushroom Cultivation by Willoughby uh, Aravalo is a, a great book, very accessible. Um, he, he talks, you know, he, he shows you how you can grow mushrooms in your shower and uh, in your radiator room and things like that. And Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake is a great book That's uh, that was released last year. Um, and Trad Cotter's book, uh, Organic Mushroom Farming and Microremediation, uh, essential book. Well, Doug, I really appreciate you joining us today. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. There you have it. Go buy In Search of Mycotopia at the AcresUSA.com bookstore. Use the coupon code APRILPOD, that's A-P-R-I-L-P-O-D, for 10% off on all titles. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tractor Time brought to you by Acres USA and Barn to Door. Subscribe to our channel on YouTube, iTunes, or anywhere podcasts are available. Also find us on AcresUSA.com, EcoFarmingDaily.com, and don't forget to subscribe to our monthly magazine. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.